And uh, for those of you who are visiting church today, we are in a sermon series on uh, the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter. Uh, funny numberings, all of these things in the Bible, but this is a letter, and it was the first letter by Peter the Apostle. Uh, some of you will remember Peter was uh, one of Jesus' followers. He was the one who uh, was called to be the rock upon which Jesus would build his church, but he was also the one who denied Jesus three times uh, on the night of Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion. Um, and, and kind of ran off embarrassed and ashamed, and then was recommissioned um, uh, after Jesus' resurrection. And this is a letter written maybe about 20, 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection uh, in the 60s of the first century to Christians uh, scattered throughout what is modern-day Turkey. Um, and Christianity was a new faith. It, following Jesus was new. Maybe we take it for granted. Maybe, maybe you've gone to church for midnight mass all your life, and as long as you've known we're a Christian country, and you know, it's an old thing. This was a new thing, and it was a new way of life, and it was a new way of behaving. It was a new set of attitudes. It was a new way of thinking. It was a new way of worshiping. And the Christians, the new Christians, needed instruction on what this new way of life looked like. They needed to understand that this was... This was not just business as usual. This was a disruption, a break, a change in the pattern of life and of living and of worship because of what God had done, because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And actually, some scholars believe that this letter of 1 Peter was written to be read out at baptisms and to be given in baptism preparation classes. Logan with Jessica and uh, friends and family and Caleb and his mom and friends, family, have been doing some baptism preparation classes, and, uh, and, and we've got some material that we go through to help people understand what it means to be baptized, and um, we would say it's not like a, a like a, it's not a, you know, a, a rabbit's foot around your neck, it's not a dream catcher, it's not something kind of mystical or freaker, it's more like a marriage, it's more like getting married to somebody that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. And it's not like an arranged marriage where you turn up uh, on the day of the wedding and you meet your, 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 your husband-to-be for the first time. This is a marriage in a relationship that you're going to continue. And, and all good marriages need communication and they need ongoing quality time with one another. And that's what baptism is more like. It's more like a marriage than an insurance policy. Yeah? And, uh, and so this letter was given to uh, these new Christian communities probably read at baptism services, probably used in preparing people for baptism to help them understand who Jesus is, who Jesus has made these new Christians, and how they should now live as a result. And, and in this passage that Caleb just read to us, I think Peter explains this by talking about Jesus the living stone and us living stones like him. Jesus who makes us a royal priesthood, that's what he does and makes us, and how we then live as the people of God. And so that's my kind of heading today is stones, priests, people. There you are, there's a little icon so you can remember it, stones, priests, and people. Uh, I'm not suggesting for one moment that in the first century AD the priests looked anything like that. It's just an icon as a handy visual aid to remind you. So what does that mean? What does it mean to say that we are stones, that we are living stones? This is what Peter says. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, right, the living stone. So there's one living stone. And he goes on to say, this living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. 
right? You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. As we come to Jesus, the living stone, we are to be like living stones. We're supposed to look like Jesus. We're supposed to become like Jesus. He's the living stone. We're like living stones. And, and Jesus is going to build us. And the reason I put a wall up there is we're going to be built into a spiritual house. We are going to be conformed to Christ. That's the purpose and the, the destiny, the fate of every Christian woman, man, child, is to become conformed to Christ, to become more like him. Right? That doesn't mean growing long hair and beards. We don't even know whether Jesus had long hair and a beard. Probably did, but we don't know. It, what it means is that we become more like him in his character, his attributes, the way he lives, the way he treats people, the way he lives with regard to people. We are to be conformed to Christ. We are to become like living stones. Now, we may appear to be an ugly chunk of rock without form. I don't know what you see when you look in the mirror each morning, when you look at yourself. Perhaps you see things that you're quite pleased with, perhaps you see parts of yourself that you rather wish were a little bit different to yourself. Some of us are definitely trying to kind of keep this in control. Um, you know, I've never liked my nose particularly. My hairline is definitely receding. We all look at ourselves and we have parts of our appearance that look rough and ugly and unpleasant to ourselves. We all, we all have that. It's a universal human experience to be maybe happy with some parts of our appearance, unhappy with others. However you feel about yourself, if you ever feel like you're a kind of hewn piece of rock, an ugly chunk or a boulder, a master sculptor sees the beautiful statue hidden within. Think about the great sculptor and artist Michelangelo. Somebody, once upon a time, 500 years ago, 400 years ago, put a chunk of marble in front of Michelangelo and it had rough edges and diagonal edges and, you know, bits which are harsh and shapeless. And Michelangelo looked at it and he saw the figure of David. You know, his famous sculpture of David. A master sculptor looks at a chunk of rock and sees the beautiful statue hidden within. And that's what it means to become like the living stone. Jesus is the master sculptor who looks at us, whatever the condition of our lives, and sees the beautiful statue hidden within and begins to carve, begins to work, begins to form us in his image. And then what happens with these living stones that we've become? We're built into a spiritual house, or rather a house for his spirit. We have, that means we have purpose in our lives. That means that God has a plan for us. It's not a plan for us by ourselves. It's a plan alongside other people to create a new building, a new edifice, a new structure, a new house, a new dwelling place in which God's Holy Spirit might dwell and be known. There's a story of a man who was visiting a stonemason's yard. And as he walked through the stonemason's yard, he saw some people sitting at their benches, hammering away with their hammers and their chisel into big, ugly bits of rock. And he asked the first one, what are you making? And the man said, I'm just carving this into a rectangular brick. Very good, keep on going. He walked on and he asked the second man, what are you making? And the man replied, I'm building a cathedral. I'm building a cathedral. You see, 
the purpose of each of our lives is to be built into this spiritual house that God is making in which his glory will dwell. A spiritual house in which there will be hospitality and love, feasting, mercy, joy, hope, peace. It's not going to be like some of the houses of the world in which there's pain, aggression, greed, anger, enmity. It's going to be a house in which his spirit dwells. How do we know how's this house going to take its form? Well, Jesus is going to become the cornerstone. It says... uh, Jesus becomes uh, the precious stone. It says in verse uh, 6, quoting scripture, it says, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. That's what Jesus is. Jesus is the precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. It says to you who believe the stone is precious. To those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So the Bible describes Jesus as a cornerstone, or in other parts it describes it as a, Jesus as a capstone or a keystone. Well, what are they? A capstone or a keystone is the stone that goes at the top of an arch, so that as the arch is built up, the keystone or the capstone holds it all together. It finds its pinnacle in that keystone or capstone so that things don't fall over. It's given stability and form and structure with that capstone and keystone. What about a cornerstone? A cornerstone is the first stone that is laid in the structure of, in the foundation and the structure of a building. And it's the stone from which every other right angle and wall is based. So the the cornerstone is the stone that is perfect in form, whose measurements are exact and angles are correct, so that every other stone is laid in reference to that stone. And that's what Jesus is in our lives. He is the perfect cornerstone. And we are laid with reference to him. We are built around him, on him. And we know whether our, we know whether our lives are true insofar as we look at him and figure out whether we are in alignment. Peter says, you're to be like living stones. Like living stones built into a spiritual house. He says also that we are to be a royal priesthood. He says you're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, verse 5. And then he goes on later on in verse 9 to say you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We spoke a couple of weeks ago about what it means to be chosen, to be chosen. Not, not that we choose God, but that, to know that God has in Christ chosen us. But here he's saying more, he's saying you're a royal priesthood. Well, what on earth does that mean? And you need to understand, to, to understand what a royal priesthood is, you need to understand something about what monarchy was like, what royalty was like in, uh, in the first century and in the ancient world, and also what priesthood was like. So kings, uh, royals, ruled with what they claimed to be the authority of God. They spoke on God's behalf, claiming uh, whichever God they, they ruled on behalf of, whichever God they worshipped, they would claim to have that God's authority to speak. But priests did something slightly different. Priests mediated the presence of God to the people through the offering of worship and sacrifice. Priests stood in the gap, if you like, and and, and helped the people bring their sacrificial worship to God and then pronounced the blessing of God and the absolution and all those things. And, And in most of Israel's history... The kings were chosen from one family line and the priests from another family line because they had different tasks, different purposes. But Peter now says, you are a royal priesthood. You're going to be both kings and priests. 
You're going to act with the authority of God and you're also going to bear the presence of God in the world and offer that worship. There's one really fascinating character in the Bible called Melchizedek. He appears in Genesis 14 and he's described as being uh, the king of Salem. That was the original name for Jerusalem. And, uh, and also a priest, and he comes out and he makes an offering and offers worship. And in Melchizedek, you have somebody who is both a king ruling a territory and acting with authority, but also a priest offering sacrifice and worship. And the Bible looks at Melchizedek and says, ah, here's a clue, here's an insight, this is what Jesus is like. So Psalm 110 says, I've made you a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, a priest who's also a king. And Hebrews chapter 5 and 6 in the New Testament quotes that same Psalm 110 and looks back and says, Jesus is, is like Melchizedek. He is both priest and king. And Peter says to us, you are a royal priesthood. You're like that. What's the message that we proclaim with God's authority? So we're like kings, we get to proclaim a rule of God with his authority. What's the message that we show by God's presence in us? Well, Peter says it. He says, you're there, you're a royal priesthood, so that you might proclaim, quote, the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In other words, if you've ever known that God loves you, if you've ever known his transforming power in your lives, if you know that you've been forgiven, you've received peace or love or joy from him, if you know that you've been transferred from darkness into light, if you know that your life has been changed, then now you have the authority of the king and you have the presence of God through the priest to proclaim that by what you say and what you do in the world around you. So God makes us priests so that we can, a royal priesthood, so that we can speak with authority about what God has done in our lives, that his marvellous deeds, his wonderful deeds, and, and so that we can uh, share his presence with others. Finally, um, God makes us a people. And, and, and it says in verse 10, uh, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. The, the New Testament has different words for describing people or crowds or groups. One of the words is called oklos, and that is translated just crowd. That's the mob. Uh, it was the oklos who gathered and called for Pilate to crucify Jesus. Right? It wasn't an organized group. It was, just, it was a riot. It was a mob. It was, a, it was just a bunch of people all gathering together, baying for blood. Uh, it was perhaps a little bit like some of the populism that we can sometimes see in our culture nowadays. But it also talks about a demos. The Bible talks about a demos from which we get democracy, the rule of the people, the community. And the demos is about the organized people, the community. It comes from deme, which was the word for village. It means a unit, a community, people who know one another. You are now a people, a community, a family even. And this family lives in a particular way. But when you hear me say family, let me get this absolutely clear. Family for a Christian does not mean the people who biologically gave birth to you. It doesn't mean your aunties and uncles and cousins and brothers and sisters in the blood. Genealogical trees, genealogical trees, are, family trees are no good for the Christian community. Because Jesus is adopting people to be his daughters, his sons, his brothers and sisters from every different people, every different nationality, every different ethnicity, every different background. We see it in Galatians 3.28 in another passage in the Bible where Paul says that there is no longer 
Jew and Greek, male and female, slave nor free, but you are all one in Jesus Christ. In other words, whatever in the world makes you your tribe, right? Your football club, your skin color, your sexual orientation, your socioeconomic class, your political views, whatever might make you belong to your tribe in the world's eyes means nothing in the church. Because in the church, God is making a new family in which all people are joined together in unity. Like all families, it's not always easy. doesn't mean everybody gets on all the time. doesn't mean that everybody's alike or thinks the same thing. But it does mean that we learn to love one another and we, and we, and, and we cherish one another in a new way. It does mean that we have to resist the kind of tribalism that the world would push us into. And our lifestyle counts. What we do counts. Peter says, abstain from sinful desire. Change your ways. You know, that stuff, you know, when you get that hankering to gossip, to be cruel, when you get that hankering to be greedy, when you get that hankering to look to your own self-interest, lay it aside. Abstain. Consider other people first. He says, live good lives. Live such good lives among the pagans, all the people who don't know Jesus, who don't follow God. Live such good lives that they might see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. So how do we become like these stones, these priests, this royal priesthood, these people? Well, it takes the waters of baptism to do it. And that's what we're going to celebrate in a moment. It takes the waters of baptism to make us a new people. And if you don't believe that water can transform rugged stones, then let's just watch this video. Okay, we aren't actually doing just balloons today. We're doing a rock because you guys said so. Baptism is the moment that we declare that the waters of baptism, the living waters of God's Holy Spirit in us, are strong enough, powerful enough, tough enough even to change these stone-clad hearts, to shape us, to carve us, to mold us into the image of God. Would you like to stand? And let's pray together. Father God, whatever the condition of our hearts this morning, whether we are soft and tender, open to your touch, or whether we're feeling hard-hearted and stony and rocky, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us now. 
Pray for those of us who are baptized that we would renew our baptism vows and that your spirit would be the living water that changes us and shapes us and molds us. We thank you that you are making us to be like living stones who conform to the living stone, Jesus Christ our Lord, and that you are building us into a house in which your spirit dwells. We pray now for Logan and for Caleb as we go outside and baptize them, that your spirit would be even more powerful than that powerful water jet, that it would mold them and conform them to your image now and in the years to come and for the rest of their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please make